Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke, as we are once again in chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, continuing to learn about Jesus ministering in the region of Galilee, showing who he is and teaching concerning the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 5. And for this morning, uh, the verses that we will be looking at and learning from are verses 17 through 26. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17, if you would follow along. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying we have seen remarkable things today. In Jesus' ministry in Galilee he has shown himself to possess what he has in himself as God, and what he also possesses as the Messiah, namely, authority. Authority. Jesus has been demonstrating his power and his authority. And it's started with the teaching that Jesus taught with. He taught with authority. Luke chapter 4, verse 32 says that the people were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with Authority. Jesus has demonstrated his authority not only in his teaching, but in his miraculous healing and casting out of demons. And in Luke 4, verse 36, the people began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Jesus demonstrates his authority in not only casting out demons, but also in healing diseases. In verse 39 of the same chapter, standing over Simon's mother-in-law, he rebuked the fever that she had, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. Jesus showed his authority in his teaching. He showed his authority in his miraculous powers of healing and casting out demons. But here in this passage, Jesus takes things up another level. He shows his authority, and he shows that he's the, the one who has authority not only to teach a certain way and to do miraculous things, but also to forgive sins. This 
is a high degree of authority, one that the scribes and the Pharisees here recognize, is something that belongs only to God. This is something that goes beyond the authority that would have come before. Even in prophets of old, who would have had authoritative teaching, who would have been uh, given the authority to do miracles. But this takes it up another level. And Jesus comes in and intentionally shows that he has the authority to do this amazing and, as we'll see, vital act of forgiving sins. The passage teaches us about Jesus' power to heal and authority to forgive. We've already seen his power to heal on display, but now we're going to see how his power to heal demonstrates and validates his claim that he has the authority to forgive sins. And so we begin in verse 17 with the setting where Jesus teaches before the teachers. In verse 17 it says one day he was teaching. Jesus is teaching and in one sense this is just another day. He is teaching over and over again throughout Capernaum and it seems uh, throughout Galilee and the parallel passages tell us that this is exactly where he was, was in Galilee and specifically in Capernaum. But it's not just another day because something is significant is happening and a new group of people has been brought into the picture, namely the religious leaders we here see referred to as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It says that they were sitting there. In addition to Jesus' teaching, the religious leaders are sitting and they are listening to him teach. Now in this verse, we get our introduction in the book of Luke to some people that you probably know about if you've known the Bible for any length of time, which is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or as they'll be referred to later in this passage, the scribes. These religious leaders uh, came to, uh, they were developed, this group of leaders were developed in Israel over the course of the past decades and even centuries. And uh, we read a little bit about them. One commentator tells us this. The Pharisees were a non-priestly or lay separatist movement whose goal was to keep the nation faithful to Mosaic faith. In order to do this, they had a very developed tradition that gave rulings on how the law applied in a variety of possible situations not addressed directly by Scripture. This writer also goes on to tell us about the teachers of the law. He says the teachers of the law were religious lawyers who supported the development of this extra-biblical tradition. Their motive was to preserve and contextualize the biblical teaching into new settings. Usually called scribes, they are often linked with the Pharisees or the chief priests. And these legal assistants helped in recording the tradition for future generations. They functioned like religious parliamentarians for the sect and were Pharisees themselves. The Pharisees were a strict movement that had little popular appeal, but they held much influence in key places. And so these Pharisees and these scribes were powerful religious leaders. They were influential and they were the people that would have been uh, looked to as the ones who were really religious, the ones who really knew their stuff, the ones who really knew the Bible and were serious about living it out. And these Pharisees and teachers of the law, Luke tells us, were not just local but had come from every village all over Israel, of Galilee in the north and of Judea in the south and from Jerusalem, the capital city. Jesus then is now getting serious attention, not just from the people of his family, not just from a few select people who were told by God that he was coming when he was young, uh, but from people all over the land. 
Jesus has become known to them. And you can imagine the conversations they're having among themselves. This Jesus is getting popular. What do we need to do about him? Maybe we need to go check him out. Maybe we need to make sure that he's teaching what he's supposed to be teaching. He's doing miracles. Maybe this one is from God. Or maybe he's doing fake signs of some kind and we need to go shut him down. Whatever the case may be, these men are hearing about Jesus. And now they want to no longer hear about Jesus, but they want to hear Jesus for themselves. So they come and they sit to listen and to observe what Jesus is doing. In addition to Jesus teaching and the Pharisees and teachers sitting and listening, there's one more thing taking place that Luke points out, which is that power is present for healing. Power is present for healing. The power of the Lord, he says, was present for him to perform healing. Now, this is not an unusual circumstance because Jesus has been doing this and has been healing throughout his Galilean ministry. But it's noteworthy because of what Jesus is about to do. Luke is just showing uh, that something along these lines is about to take place. And lo and behold, someone comes that this healing power is going to be applied to. Starting in verse 18, we read the next scene of the story where a paralytic displays a heart of faith. A paralytic displays a heart of faith. Some men, he says, verse 18, were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed or a, a paralytic. Now, there were lots of people coming to Jesus from all over trying to get healed of their diseases and of their sicknesses. But one of the problems when you are paralyzed is that in order to get healed from your being paralyzed, you have to actually be able to get to Jesus. And that's not really very possible on your own. It's kind of like the old commercial that some of you may remember that asks, do you need your glasses to find your glasses? And some of you can sympathize with that. Thankfully, he had some other people who could help him, and they were carrying him. They were bringing him to Jesus. He had a stretcher type of bed, something that the four men could carry him on. And so his friends or these men bring him to Jesus. And it says that they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him so that Jesus could look at him and just as he did on many occasions when people were brought to him so that he could heal him. Perhaps he would lay his hand upon him and heal him just as he did with the leper in the previous passage or with others. But anyway, he needed to be in front of him. He wanted Jesus to see him so that Jesus could then perform this miracle of healing on him. But they couldn't get in. And verse 19 says, not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. <clears throat> so they're met with an obstacle, with a roadblock. There are a ton of people here. They can't get in the house. So what are they going to do? Well, at this point, many of you, or uh, some of you perhaps, would give up and say, well, we'll just have to wait until another time. Or maybe we'll wait until he comes outside. Or maybe we're just not going to be able to get to him. You're afraid to do something about it. But these men don't give up, and this man on the stretcher doesn't give up. And so what do they do? Of course, you know the story. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. In front of Jesus. A little bit of background might be helpful when we think about roofs. We're probably thinking of how this might, uh, you know, you, you think of your own roof, maybe sloped and up high, maybe a story or two above the ground. It might be difficult to do something like this. But uh, homes in this day would have been at least a little bit easier to get up to the roof on while you're carrying someone on a stretcher or on a bed. Uh, Daryl Bach helps us saying, quote, the typical house in Palestine had two stories with the roof area serving as the second story and steps up to the roof often lay 
in the open. The roof was usually somewhat flat and about six feet above the ground. Wooden beams were laid across the top of the stone or mud walls with a layer of reeds, thorns, and several inches of clay on top of them. Such a roof, he says, was the answer for the blocked path to Jesus, end quote. Mark chapter 2, a parallel passage, tells us that they dug an opening. This wasn't the easy way to get in to Jesus, but they wanted in. This was the way that they had. This was all that they could do. And so they were determined to do it. They believed that Jesus could do it. And so they did it. They took advantage of the only way that they could think of to get in. I'm reminded of a time a few years ago I was driving down Westland Drive. You know where that is. Most of you approaching Ebenezer Road and up ahead of me. Um, I spotted something that didn't seem plausible. But as I got closer, sure enough, this is exactly what was going on. A Toyota Prius with a mattress on top and four arms sticking out the windows, one arm out each window, holding the mattress on top of the car so that they could transport it down the road. Now, I can think of a lot more efficient ways and a lot more secure ways to carry a mattress down the road, but this is what they had. You do what you have to do. You get from point A to point B in the way that you have at your disposal. And these guys are doing something similar. It's really the only option. They are just resourceful and determined, and they really want to get this man where he's going. And so they're going to get him there. And they knock out the roof and they're worried. Maybe they'll fix it later. Maybe they're not thinking about that. They don't care. What matters is their friend is paralyzed and Jesus can do something about it. And so they're going to go and bring him to Jesus. So it takes a lot of effort, a lot of courage, uh, a lot of shamelessness. What are the people going to think? What are all of these Pharisees and teachers of the law going to think about us busting through here? What's Jesus going to think about this? Well... We'll have to wait to find out. Because his response is going to be based on something else that this effort shows. Now an amazing thing happens when Jesus is set down in front of him. Something that's surprising even for this man and for his friends. Because Jesus looks at him and looks at them. And it says this in verse 20. Seeing their faith, he said, friend. Your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. What does this demonstrate about them? Their determination, their care, um, that they really wanted to get him to Jesus. But it showed their faith in Jesus. Seeing, he says, their faith. This is the first time, by the way, of many that faith is mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, it is a vital component, an essential component of someone who is a follower of Jesus. You must have faith, and you must have faith in Jesus. But here, it is their action that indicated their faith. And in turn, it wasn't just that their action indicated their faith. Their faith, in turn, indicated something else about this man. And so Jesus looks at their faith, including him, and says, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I want you to consider the surprise of this statement on many levels. When he comes to him, this man is not coming so that he can have his sins forgiven. He's coming, like everyone else, so that he can be healed. In the last story, the leper, when Jesus approached him, uh, what does Jesus do when someone asks him, to heal him. He says, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. What, do you, what does he do? He immediately heals him. But what happens here? There's something altogether different. He doesn't say anything about healing. He just says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. What he's saying here is that 
your faith indicates that your sins have been forgiven. This may have been the first time faith is mentioned in Luke, but it's not the first time forgiveness is mentioned because Jesus came into the world for this very purpose. Luke 177, we, we read that he will come to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, came with the same message. Luke 3.3, he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus then came to preach the message of forgiveness of sins. And it was the message that was handed down to the apostles who then preached this message as well. 2 Corinthians 5, listen to this passage in verses 18 through 21. The apostle Paul says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What was Jesus doing in the world? Jesus was in the world, and God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself the world needed to be reconciled we sing about this at christmas time god and sinners reconciled why do we need to be reconciled in the first place because we are at enmity with god we in our sin are hostile toward god and we launch the first salvo against him we go against god we rebel against him we fight against him every time we don't worship him the way that we should Every time we don't give him thanks the way that we should. Every time we violate one of his commandments. We sin against God in these ways. And we put ourselves in a position of deserving God's judgment and of opposing him. And so, in response, God sets himself in opposition to us in terms of his judgment being placed upon us. And we are not friends, but enemies. A problem of our own making. We need reconciliation. But this can only take place through one means because we're not able to sort of work out terms with God and you know say well God you've done some things and we've done some things we, we're even it's not like that God has never done anything wrong to us but we've done everything wrong against him and so we deserve God's judgment his punishment we deserve to be sent to eternal judgment in hell this is what we deserve this is our standing before God we are at enmity with him we are hostile toward him Romans 8 says that the mindset of the flesh, our entire way of operation outside of Christ, is hostile toward God. And it does not submit itself to the law of God, and it's not even able to do so. This is the way that we act toward God. So what has to happen? We have to be reconciled. And how can we be reconciled? It's through this. The forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5.19 again says that God was reconciling the world to himself. How does he do so? Not counting their trespasses against them. We can be reconciled to God if there's a way where God doesn't count our sins against us. And Paul says he has given us the message, the word of reconciliation. This is really what we preach. This is what you're telling people. When you go out... And you tell people about Jesus. What you're telling them is not how Jesus can give you a better life. It's not just how you can have a close relationship with God. Although those things, and especially the second, can be true. 
What you're telling people is how to be made right with God. This is what the gospel is. There is no promise of a better life. There is no promise of earthly circumstances changing. What there is a promise of is if you believe in Jesus and turn from your sins, then you will be forgiven and you'll be reconciled to God. Unfortunately, many people don't even realize their need of that. They don't even know that they need to be reconciled to God. They think they're cool with God. God and them, they're at peace. There's no reason why God should be against me. After all, I'm a pretty good person. But that's not the case. All of us have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. And so we need to be reconciled or else we will face his judgment. And yet God in his grace has made a way in Christ for us to be reconciled. And here one man is said in front of everyone on the basis of his faith to be reconciled to God because his sins are forgiven. And that answers the question for us, how does forgiveness come? How does forgiveness come? Well, it comes on the basis of faith. Jesus, seeing their faith, said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. How do we gain reconciliation? It is by believing in Jesus Christ. There's many ways where people try to be reconciled to God by other means. I'm sure you can think of some. People will try to outweigh their sin with good works. This doesn't work. You can never make up for a guilty record. People will try to atone for their own sins by doing good works or by feeling bad about their sin. Sometimes people try to seek forgiveness by just confessing their sin and acknowledging, or as the common terminology unfortunately goes, simply to, by admitting that they are sinners. We need to admit that we are sinners, but we need to do more. We need to turn from our sin and we need to place our faith in Christ because we know what we are and because we know what we need. It is by faith, rather, that we find forgiveness. And the reason it's by faith is so that it can be, as Romans 4 tells us, in accordance with grace. God devised a plan of salvation where he gives it to us, and the only way to do that is if we are not involved in earning it in any way. And so God gives the instrument of faith so that when you believe, you're simply responding to a gift rather than earning and accomplishing something yourself. Forgiveness comes on the basis of faith. And so it was for this man, seeing his faith, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. He declares that his sins have been forgiven. Someone else has done this for him. He has not made up for them. And this is now his condition, his state in which he lives. And it will always be the case. Your sins are forgiven you. Not just that they are and then your forgiveness will be revoked. But your sins have been forgiven forever. They will never come back. They will never be held against you. If that's not good news, then there is no such thing. So then, Jesus here is stating that this man's sin is forgiven. And he has, um, he has said here um, that this man's sins are forgiven. He has decided this, but he is also declaring this to him. And he's doing so openly. He's doing so intentionally. Uh, there are a lot of other people who had their sins forgiven who were not openly told this in certain settings. But Jesus here wants this statement to be made on purpose on this occasion. And so before he goes any further about the paralyzed man and what his next steps would be, literally his next steps, um, Luke wants us to see something in response to what Jesus says. He wants us to observe 
how offensive this is. He wants us to observe how much skepticism this fosters in the religious leaders who are present to watch him. The paralytic has shown his faith, but now Jesus is going to show something about himself. And when we get to verse 21, we find that Jesus proves his authority to forgive. He proves his authority to forgive. And the first thing that he does is challenge the reasonings of the religious leaders. He challenges their reasonings. They think Jesus has no right to say what he has just said. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason. The scribes seems to be the same group as the teachers of the law. In fact, this would be the more common name for them. These groups, scribes and Pharisees, heard Jesus' statement and they have a big problem with it. And so they start thinking. They start reasoning within themselves. And they have two mental questions. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? And who can forgive sins but God alone? The second question, which implies only God for, can forgive sins, uh, explains why they have the first question. If only God can forgive sins, then who does this guy think he is? Who does this man think he is? Why is he saying something like this? Who gave him the right to declare sins forgiven? And so they say he is blaspheming. Now, typically when we think about blasphemy, we think about openly saying negative things about God. It really does just mean to speak bad things about God. And generally that would be things like cursing God, saying awful things about God, lying about God, saying that he's like something that he's not, or saying that he's not like something that he is. But it also can include making claims of being equal with God, which implicitly brings God down to the level of man. And so the question is, how dare you, a creature, claim to be the equal of the creator? That's exactly what they see Jesus to be doing from their perspective. Him, a man, is claiming the right to do something that only God can do. He is claiming the authority to forgive sins. So what was it that they had a problem with? Uh, when we look at the Pharisees throughout the Gospels, we understand that the Pharisees had major problems with grace and with forgiveness. And in particular with people who had heretofore never actually cared about God or doing what's right. So in the passage that follows this, we're going to find that they're really upset that Jesus is spending time with the tax collectors and the sinners. They can't believe it. They really look down on forgiveness from really bad stuff. And certainly, they had a problem understanding grace and forgiveness. And uh, in addition to this, they were those who basically sought to be right with God on the basis of their own righteousness, their own works. They may have understood that God could forgive sin, but they really were the ones who pursued righteousness according to the law. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3, where he says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and as to the righteousness which was in the law, he was found blameless. That was the way that he pursued it. We read in Romans chapter 10 that Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law because they didn't seek it by faith, but as though it were by works. This is what Israel, and in particular these religious leaders, did. They tried to be right with God on the basis of works. But it isn't really here the statement of forgiveness itself that is the problem. Even these religious leaders recognize that God does have the right to forgive sins. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? They acknowledge that God can forgive sins. And they would have to admit that because it's all over the Old Testament. 
It's all over the scriptures. People, unfortunately, have a view that God of the Old Testament is just a judgmental God. And all he does is tell people what to do and strike them down when they don't do it. But we learn from many places that were written before Jesus came into the world that God is not only a judge, but also he is one who does and is eager to forgive. So we read in places like Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, which says this, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. True worshipers are only made possible if there is forgiveness of sins. No one can actually come to God and worship him, even if they try to make their selves right, because they have to be forgiven first to be able to come to God. No one would stand before him. In fact, this is one of the goals of forgiveness is to actually produce worshipers of God so that we could have people who worship him on the basis of having access to him and then additionally worship him for what he has done for us in forgiving us. Psalm 32 speaks of forgiveness. And David says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So the Old Testament tells us about God forgiving sins in many places, including these Psalms. These religious leaders didn't really then have a, um, a problem with forgiveness in principle. Their religion wasn't very full of it, but it wasn't their view uh, of God's forgiveness that was really deficient here. Instead, they said that God could do it, but they assumed that Jesus had not been given the right to do this as well. Now, in one sense, this is good theology. They're right in a sense. Only God can forgive sins. But they failed to consider the possibility that he has given this to someone else. And so they have this objection. And we understand this a little bit, uh, even from current events, as far as what is going on, as far as people having the right to do things and the right to forgive. Many of you know there is an ongoing fight in our own country over student loan forgiveness, at least certain student loans and certain amounts. President Joe Biden says he has the right to wipe out certain amounts of certain types of student loan balances. And many other people say that he does not have the right to do this. The dispute has gone back and forth for well over a year. Now, in that case, it's a little bit different because there's debate on principles about whether it should be done or not. And people disagree about this. But there's also strong pushback on another grounds, which is, does he have the right to forgive? Does he have the right to let something go? Has this been given to him? Does he even have, regardless of whether you think it's good or bad, does he have the authority to do this? That is the point of dispute. And that's the question here as well. Does Jesus actually have the right to say something like this? Does he have the right to decide, you no longer will ever face the punishment for your sins. I am letting this go, and I'm not speaking out of turn to do so. And so it's an issue of authority. The problem is not to say that sin can be forgiven. The issue is Jesus saying, I'm the one that gets to do this. These religious leaders saw Jesus' statement as blasphemy because he was claiming the right that only God had. But what if God gave someone else the ability to do the same thing? What if, in addition to the fact that Jesus himself is God 
the Son, what if God has delegated to his Messiah the right to send away the debt that was owed? That is the point that Jesus wants to make. And so the Pharisees rightly understand here that Jesus is raising the stakes and he is doing it on purpose. He is going right to the heart of it. His first stated encounter here in Luke with these people in front of him, he is going right at them. He doesn't want there to be any confusion. I am telling you, religious leaders, that I have the right to do this thing that you understand that only God has the right to do, or at least, as it turns out, to delegate. Jesus has said and done a lot of amazing things, a lot of things that would challenge the assumptions about who he is in his teaching and his healing. But this is taking it up a really big notch. And just understand that Jesus did not have to tell this man this. He could have just known it. The man could have come and he could have said, well, I believed in Jesus and therefore my sins are forgiven because I had faith in him. The same as you or I have to do. Believing the message and just understanding that if we fit the description that this is what describes us. But here Jesus explicitly goes out of his way on purpose to raise this issue in front of these guys. And starting now, he's going to keep doing things like this that will provoke the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's not just trying to get under their skin. You understand this. He isn't just kind of in this, I'm going to go start a fight just because I kind of like to fight against people and argue theology and things like that. That's not what he's after. He is showing the truth in contrast to the way that they have misled the nation. And he is showing that he himself is the truth and has the truth and is the one who can offer this way of forgiveness. So they say he's blaspheming. And he says, I'm not. If he's wrong, then at least they are generally right, the Pharisees and scribes. Then he's stealing something that only belongs to God. But if he's right, something else is going on, something eternally significant. So who's right? Who is correct? Jesus wants to show that. So what does he do? He makes their private objections public. He answers their reasonings. Jesus, aware of their reasonings, uh, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Jesus here knows what they are thinking. And it is just that. They are not kind of murmuring to themselves and Jesus overhears what they're saying. He isn't just kind of getting a, a general vibe of what's going on. He actually knows what they are thinking. And we know this because Mark 2 verse 8 tells us that Jesus is, quote, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. He is aware in his spirit. We read in Revelation 2 that Jesus is he who searches the hearts. We know that he knows what's going on in the thoughts of man. We know that he understands what they are thinking. So he's not just looking and, you know, sort of saying, well, you know, they've got to be saying this. That's why I brought it up in the first place. He doesn't just kind of know, well, they're scribes and Pharisees. And so, of course, they're thinking this way. No, he actually knows the thoughts in their mind. And so he asks them why. Why are you reasoning in your hearts? This is not a question for information. He knows why they're reasoning. This is rhetorical. He wants to get this issue out in front of them and in front of everybody and to refute their thinking. And so Jesus lays down a test in verse 23. He says, which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? 
Now, grammatically, and as it would come out of your mouth, I couldn't tell you which one is easier to say. That's not really what he's talking about here. And in one sense, it's no easier to say one phrase or the other. You can walk around and flippantly declare your sins are forgiven and get up and walk. But Jesus isn't just talking about the, uh, the facility with which you can voice the words. He's not talking about that. He's saying, is it easier to just make a declaration like this or to back it up? Is it easier to tell someone their sins are forgiven or to prove that you have the right to do it? So what does he do? He heals the man immediately. The answer to the question, of course, is that it's easier to just say it than to do something that proves it. So he's going to do the harder thing and prove it by telling the man to get up and walk and then watch him do it. So Jesus does this. He heals the man immediately. In verse 24, he says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And here, for the first time in Luke's gospel, he refers to him by this title that will become common in the way that he refers to to himself. It's a little bit cryptic at this point. It's not definitive. As we get to the end of the gospel, we'll see that when Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, he has been intending something by it all along, which is association with the title Son of Man that was laid out in the book of Daniel in chapter 7, when there is a vision of the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, coming on the clouds, who would inherit all the kingdoms of the earth, the kingdom of God, ruling over all things. So he lays down this phrase as sort of a, a place where that all of that will be filled in as we go. For now, it's just vague enough of a title where no one could accuse him of blasphemy for using it in this moment. Because, you know, being the son of man, you are saying, I was born of human beings, and I am a man. So it's kind of uh, able to hold both of those things at the same time. And he's referring to himself by this title, saying... I want you to understand something. I want you to know that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. You remember that paralyzed man that we were talking about earlier? He's still there right in front of Jesus, lying on a stretcher. He hasn't moved. He hasn't been healed. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Jesus says this to him, and then the Pharisees are thinking, and then Jesus says something to them. Nothing has happened yet. He's still unhealed. He's still paralyzed. Now, not that much time has passed, but he came to get healed, and that hasn't happened, at least not yet. Because Jesus has a specific purpose for this miracle. He's making a claim about something. He is the Son of Man, and he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And so while this guy is going, hey, you know, all this going on, the forgiveness of sins, that's great. I'm still paralyzed. Can you do something about that? Or at least he certainly still wants to be healed of his disease. So why did he do the miracle? To show these religious leaders and everyone there, something about himself. And he had waited on purpose to make a point. The power to heal was already there. There was nothing stopping Jesus from doing that. He, he didn't have to get you know, charged up in some way or wait for the Holy Spirit to come and to help him. He wanted to make a point. And this then would serve as the proof of what he has just said. This was the moment where he would silence the opposing crowd. And so he states the purpose of the healing in verse 24, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Again, we want to point back to Jesus and recognize that it is in him and him alone that we find the forgiveness of sins. You can't go anywhere else. There is no other option. People always talk about 
Christianity is so exclusive. It's so exclusive. Why does it have to be so exclusive? Why is there only one way? Why does it have to be Jesus? Can it be these other people who believe in their God sincerely enough or believe in God in general, but they don't know about Jesus or believe in Jesus? Why does it have to be this way? Because he's the only one who has the authority to forgive. God has given it to him and no one else. There is salvation, Acts tells us, in no one else. There is no other name given among he under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. So there's one way because there's only one with the authority to forgive. And Jesus shows by the healing that he has the authority to do this. And so he shows his power by this healing. He said to the paralytic, I say to you three things. Get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Verse 25 says, immediately, just like in the previous story, he was healed immediately. Immediately, he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home. Before the crowd, and more specifically, before those who were challenging Jesus. He gets up off the ground, grabs this thing, and just walks right out. Goes home. There um, may never have been a more significant instance of someone simply going home. Because Jesus has perfectly healed a paralyzed man. Jesus has defied and challenged the scribes and the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees who were there. And he has demonstrated that he does, in fact, have the authority to forgive sins. It is true that God is in heaven and he alone has the right to forgive sins. But now he has also sent his son to earth, as he says, and given him the right to forgive sins. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention something else as well which is that Jesus doesn't have just the authority to forgive sins, but he also made the provision to forgive sins. And most of you know this, but we have to mention that Jesus is not just forgiving sins by fiat. He is not just declaring this and somehow it works out. Jesus is declaring this because he came into the world and gave himself on a cross as the atonement for sin to make this possible. This man's sins are forgiven because the one telling him this is one day going to be nailed to a cross and die and suffer the punishment for this man's sins. And so Jesus came and declared to be true that which he would in just a couple of short years accomplish. Jesus would make it possible for himself to make this declaration by dying on a cross. Well, Jesus' audience has been growing. They've been amazed over and over again. What's going to happen now that he has done this miracle? Well, as on so many occasions before, there is a response noted. Luke has told us that the people were, um, he was growing in popularity. In um, verse 14 of chapter 4, news about him spread through all the surrounding districts. He was teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. His hometown rejected him and tried to kill him by throwing him over a cliff, but he escaped. Uh, when he came down to Capernaum, verse 37 of chapter 4, the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding districts. And then verse 42, um, the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. And then even in the preceding passage from what we just looked at, Verse uh, 15, news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. What would the gathered crowd say today? What would be the response? Luke starts with the individual. What does this individual who's been healed by Jesus do? Well, the man obeys Jesus. 
the man. The paralyzed man obeys Jesus. He has been healed. He follows Jesus' instructions. And note this small but also enormous nugget. The end of verse 25, he went home glorifying God. Glorifying God. He got the message. God was doing this. Jesus did it for him as the direct agent, but God brought it about. Jesus was God's representative. He came to Jesus hoping for a miracle, and he left with that and then some. And so he goes home praising God. And I wonder how often we forget to do the same thing. We just get the forgiveness from God, or we get the relief from circumstances, and then we forget about everything else. We forget about our need. Later on, we'll read about some men who were healed, and only one of them came back to thank Jesus. That's it. Here we ought to be reminded that we, when we receive anything from God, should glorify him for what he has done. And this man gets the point. He went home glorifying God. The crowd responds with awe. With awe. They are astonished. They are all struck with astonishment. Everybody there. They glorify God themselves. They began glorifying God, verse 26 tells us. And then they are filled with fear, saying, we have done, or we have seen remarkable things today. <coughs> remarkable, uh, the word, I have to say, doesn't even quite convey in our day just how great the things were. Marvelous or extraordinary, that's more like it. They recognize that this is just not something people do. There's something else going on. There's never been anything like this before. They credit God by glorifying him, but they recognize that Jesus is from him. And they're frightened by what they see. They're afraid. It's beyond what they could have expected. And so they comment that these things are remarkable. So the man obeys Jesus and glorifies God. The crowds respond with awe, including their glorifying of God. But notice a third response or a lack thereof. Nothing is explicitly said from the scribes. And the Pharisees, Luke is not necessarily telling us anything by this. It's not uh, telling us something by the silence. But their question has been answered. Why is he saying this? Who is this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The question has been answered by Jesus saying, I can. God has given me the authority on earth to forgive sins. And so these men, these scribes and Pharisees, are going to have to take a side. They're going to have to decide, are we going to recognize the greatness of what has been done here and glorify God for this and say that this Jesus is from him? Are we going to have to exercise faith in him? Are we going to humble ourselves and say, we have been wrong about the way we've been approaching this and this Jesus is correcting us and we are right? Are we going to acknowledge that he and he alone has authority on earth to forgive sins? Or will we continue to be skeptical and hostile even after seeing this? And will we reject him? As we find, unfortunately, the scribes and the Pharisees mostly did the latter. Most of them heard Jesus teach. They heard his message. They heard his gospel presentation. They heard and saw that he had the right to forgive sins. They even saw miracles. And yet, because it got in the way of the, the life and the roles that they wanted to have, they rejected him. Even to the point where they would ultimately kill him, crucify him. 
And yet today, there are people who remain unwilling to commit to Jesus Christ. They've seen much less, but maybe they think, well, if we saw a sign from God, if we saw Jesus do something, if he showed up here and demonstrated a miracle, we would believe in him then. But we know from the response of the scribes and Pharisees that that's not necessarily the case. It really is a matter of are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to submit to his authority? Are you willing to abandon your pursuit of righteousness by any kind of good deeds? And are you willing to humble yourself and say, I need to be forgiven? Too many people don't come to Jesus because they just think, I don't need him that bad. I don't have to have my sins forgiven. Maybe some, but not like the other people. I, I have some percentage of my right standing with God that is me, and I just need somebody to make up for the rest, or for God to only focus on that part. It's not the way that it works. You have to recognize that you are a sinner in need of Jesus, but the glorious news is if you do, he grants forgiveness to you in the same way as he did to this man. This man made a special effort to get to him, but you don't have to dig through any ceiling tiles or go around a crowd or be carried to Jesus, all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. As Romans 10 says, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Recognize that you need your sins forgiven. Recognize that he is the Lord and call out to him, confessing your sins and trusting him to save you. These teachers give us an example of what not to do. So the question then is, do you realize your need, your greatest need for the forgiveness of sins and that Jesus offers this? And will you respond to him? In faith. This is the constant challenge that Luke gives to us and the constant offer of salvation, which comes by this gracious Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is able to forgive and willing to forgive. Because indeed, if you were to mark iniquity, oh Lord, who could stand? Certainly not any of us. But we thank you for your forgiveness, which enables us to come before you, to be free from judgment, and to be able to worship you and to fear you. God, may we honor and exalt Jesus Christ and proclaim his message of forgiveness of sins to others as we go today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.